Section 3 of the Shakespeare Apocrypha. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla. The Shakespeare Apocrypha by C.F. Tucker Brooke. Introduction, Part 2. Arden of Feversham, Locrine. 1. Arden of Feversham was entered on the stationer's register on April 3rd, 1592. The same year appeared the first edition, in quarto, Q1, with the following title page, The Lamentable and True Tragedy of M. Arden of Feversham in Kent, who was most wickedly murdered by the means of his disloyal and wanton wife, who, for the love she bare to one Mosby, hired two desperate ruffians, Blackwell and Shackbag, to kill him. Wherein it showed the great malice and dissimulation of a wicked woman, the unsatiable desire of filthy lust and the shameful end of all murderers imprinted at London for Edward White, dwelling at the little north door of Paul's Church at the sign of the gun, 1592. This edition, of which copies are preserved in the Bodleian and in the Dice Collection, South Kensington, is in black letter. It gives a remarkably good text and appears to have been closely followed by the second edition, Q2, of 1599. The only copy of Q2 known to exist is at the library of the Duke of Devonshire. In 1633, third quarto, Q3, was published. This poor edition, which is to be found in both the Bodleian and in the British Museum, has a different pagination from Q1, and is especially remarkable for the number of words it emits. The murder which Arden of Feversham represents took place on February 15, 1550, considerably more than a generation, therefore, before the publication of the first edition, or the earliest date, 1590, to which the actual writing of the play can easily be referred. Yet there can be no doubt that popular interest in the event was still lively and widespread, Hollinshed's Chronicle contains a detailed account, which many common inaccuracies and embellishments show to have been followed closely by the author of the tragedy. Stowe's Chronicle gives a brief narrative of the crime and its punishment, while the actual facts are recorded in the Ward Moat Book of Faversham. To the dramatic talent of Hollinshed, we seem to owe the story of the repeated unsuccessful attempts on Arden's life, and the merging of the two colorless individuals of the Ward Moat Book into the single effective figure of Susan. Finally, the Roxburgh Collection preserves a long ballad of 48 stanzas, probably inspired by the play, with the following title, Complaint and Lamentation of Mistress Arden of Feversham in Kent, who, for the love of one Mosby, hired certain ruffians and villains most cruelly to murder her husband, with the fatal end of her and her associates, to the tune of Fortune My Foe. Not till nearly two centuries after the first appearance of Arden of Feversham was the play coupled with the name of Shakespeare. This service and, right or wrong, it should be deemed a service, we owe to a loyal but somewhat uncritical citizen of Faversham, Edward Jacob, who in 1770 published a reprint of the first edition with the title, The Lamentable and True Tragedy of M. Arden of Feversham in Kent, with a preface, in which some reasons are offered in favor of its being the earliest dramatic work of Shakespeare now remaining. The only reasons which Jacob actually offers are embraced in a scant half-page of parallel phrases between Arden and various genuine plays, and the similarity thus indicated is of so general a character as to prove nothing at all, beyond the obvious fact that Arden of Feversham and Shakespeare both belong to the Elizabethan period. Footnote. The following is a list of phrases and words for which Jacob cites Shakespearean parallels. Such a taunting letter, painted cloth, mermaid song, basilisk, lean-faced knave, white-livered, by his merriment as deer, precision, a raven for a dove, wild cat, Swear me on the interrogatories, horned beast, endymion, death makes amend for sin. End footnote. 
Around few players has so large a mass of able criticism accumulated during the last century with so little definite result as around Arden of Feversham. Those readers who feel impelled to assign this fine tragedy to the pen of the youthful Shakespeare have on their side the great authority of Mr. Swinburne and the more hesitating testimony of Charles Knight, Delius, and the Dutch translator Quitert. But the balance of critical opinion, it may safely be said, is turning slowly to the side of respectful incredulity, the side represented by Tyrrell, Ulrici, Ward, Professor Sainsbury, Simmons, and the editors of the three modern texts, Mr. Bullen, Warnk, and Proschult, and the Reverend Ronald Bain. Footnote. For more exact details as to works referenced to here and elsewhere, readers are requested to consult the bibliography. End footnote. In considering the claim to authenticity of the work before us and others of its class, it is but fair to recognize that the reader's sympathies will ordinarily incline him strongly toward their acceptance. Besides the pleasure involved in the fancied recognition of a real personality, and that the greatest, behind the frigid mask of anonymity, allowance must be made, particularly on first perusal, for the intoxicating effect of the poetry. In the five doubtful plays in which the question of Shakespeare's authorship lends itself to rational discussion, there are gorgeous poetic passages that grip the imagination and overwhelm the reason. If, however, as is the case with regard to Arden of Feversham and its companions, our enthusiasm dies away when we consider the work in its dramatic entirety, or fit the words to the speaker, then surely we should pause long ere we venture on anything approaching a general attribution to Shakespeare. There is nothing fitful or transitory about the true Shakespearean quality. His creations gain, instead of losing, by repeated and various examination, and the very sign manual of his work is the subordination of the expression to the idea the complete amalgamation of the parts in the whole. Arden of Feversham fails in all of these great tests, and a full century of the most searching inquiry has not been able to add one iota to the probability of its authenticity. In such cases, not to advance is to recede hopelessly. Were there enough of Shakespeare and Arden of Feversham to make up more than two or three purple patches at the most, its presence would long ago have made itself perceptible to the dullest vision, as it has done in the less intrinsically interesting play of Pericles. Mr. Flea and Mr. Charles Crawford have argued with a considerable amount of plausibility that Arden of Feversham was written by Thomas Kidd, who is known to be the author of a prose work on a very similar subject, The Murder of John Bruin. It seems likely that there are indeed more parallels in feeling and expression between our play and the tragedies of Kidd than coincidences will account for, but they presume imitation, as Sarazin and Mr. Boise have pointed out, rather than identity of authorship. Whether the unknown author of Arden and Feversham was a debtor or creditor to Kidd, must for the present be left in uncertainty. There is but one character of the first magnitude in Arden of Feversham, Alice, Arden's wife and murderess. It is her demoniacal persistence in the execution of her horrible purpose, while her confederates fail or fall away, that gives the tragedy, otherwise hopelessly disjointed and ineffective, an ultimate unity and a really dramatic spirit. To her, too, belong much of the finest poetry in the two most dramatic speeches, probably, in the play. Yet this gigantic figure is vulgarized and degraded by the two vices, which are most distinctively un-Shakespearean, and which, perhaps, it is hardest of all to pardon in a tragic heroine, purposeless revolting deceit and coarseness of feeling. Through all the dialogues between Alice and her husband, the reader is shocked by the moral obtuseness, the love of clever lying and hypocrisy for its own sake, even when there is no dramatic need for it which is so entirely absent from Shakespeare's works and so unpleasantly conspicuous in many of his contemporaries. So, too, Alice has little of the sustained delicacy of tragic feeling. From the heights of lofty passion, she descends into the deepest mire of criminal brutality, 
with such words as those she speaks concerning the news of her husband's intended assassination. They be so good that I must laugh for joy before I can begin to tell my tale. For a truly rounded poet, sensible of the dignity and delicacy of tragedy, such lines would be as impossible as the undisguised doggerel of Black Will's leave-taking, which comes like a dash of cold water at the most breathless moment of the play. We have our gold, Mistress Alice, adieu. Mosby, farewell, and Michael, farewell, too. 2. The first and only early edition of Locrine dates from 1595. The title page reads, The lamentable tragedy of Locrine, the eldest son of King Brutus, discoursing the wars of the Britons and Huns with their discomfiture, the Britons' victory with their accidents, and the death of Albanact. No less pleasant than profitable. Newly set forth, overseen, and corrected by W.S. London, printed by Thomas Creed, 1595. During the previous year, on July 20th, 1594, the play had been entered in the stationer's register. The first definite suggestion of Shakespearean authorship belongs to 1664, when Locrine was reprinted, for the first time since its original appearance, as the last of the seven new plays in the third folio of Shakespeare. The fourth folio, printed in 1685, retained these supplementary dramas, Locrine among the number, but of the seven, only Pericles has succeeded in establishing its claim to a place in modern editions. The mythical story on which the tragedy of Locrine was founded was current at the end of the 16th century in several forms. Herr Theodore Erb, who has written a dissertation on the subject, believes the dramatist to have followed Geoffrey of Monmouth's chronicle in the main, with occasional borrowings from the versions of Caxton and of Holinshed. The inquiry into the authorship of Locrine begins naturally with the consideration of the initials W.S. on the title page. And here our play connects itself at once with two other apocryphal works, Thomas Lord Cromwell and The Puritan, the first editions of which, in 1602 and 1607 respectively, bear the identical words by W.S. Now it is pretty clear, from the evidence of style, spirit, and method alike, that these three dramas are not by the same author, whether the William Smith suggested by Malone and Knight or another, and we do not know of any two or three competent dramatists of the time, leaving Shakespeare out of the question, each of whom had the initials W.S. In 1611, moreover, the early play of The Troublesome Reign of King John was republished with a new claim, written by W.S.H., where it seems certain that a dishonest but cautious bookseller meant the public to construe W.S.H. as William Shakespeare. From all this, we may conclude with tolerable assurance. First, that the initials W.S. on the title pages of Locrine, Cromwell, and the Puritan may well stand for William Shakespeare. Footnote. In the case of Locrine, however, the probability of a reference to Shakespeare is much less than in the case of the two later plays, both by reason of the former's early date and because of the wording on the title page. End footnote. Second, that such doubtful and suspicious evidence, though it apparently impressed the editors of the third folio, has almost no weight in deciding the question of Shakespeare's authorship of the plays under discussion. Tieck accepts Locrine as the earliest of Shakespeare's dramatic works, and Schlegel registers his belief that this tragedy and Titus Andronicus must stand or fall together on their claim to authenticity. Few succeeding critics are willing to admit the possibility of Shakespeare's concern in the serious part of Locrine, which is indeed composed in the most exaggerated manner of the university wits. The comic scenes, however, which center around the figure of Strumbo, are more successful and more in the early style of Shakespeare. Accordingly, Hopkinson and Ulrici agree in pronouncing the Strumbo scene Shakespearean, while Hopkinson gives the rest of the play to George Peel. The distinction in tone between the tragic and the comic elements appears, however, to rest not on duality of authorship, 
but on the change from a very affected type of poetry and a mythical age to prose, and what is, to all intents and purposes, contemporary life. The dovetailing of comedy and tragedy in such scenes as Act 2, Scenes 3, 4, and 5, and Act 4, Scene 2, is much too perfect to be explained on any hypothesis of double authorship, and these four scenes, unquestionably the work of a single man, represent all the peculiarities of the play, which I feel a large degree of confidence in attributing as a whole to the pen of Robert Greene, before, however, entering specifically upon the vexed and vexing problem of the author's identity, it will be well to summarize the more obvious features of the style. Locrine is possibly as characteristic an example as can be found of the type of drama developed by Green and Peel. The usual faults of their school are in this play exaggerated into vices, but the special lyric beauty, the imaginative fervor, and the delicate feeling for natural loveliness are equally prominent. And both in its defects and its merits, Locrine manifests close consanguinity with the acknowledged plays of the university wits. No reader can well fail to note the infinity of classical illusion, the craze for mouth-filling but meaningless adjectival epithets, the ranting bombast of the heroic figures, the wearisome lyrical repetition of high-sounding words and phrases, or the childish delight in such freaks of verbiage as agnominated and contentation. No less striking, however, and no less indicative of its authorship, are the poetic beauties of Locrine detached, for the most part, and scattered like living springs in the dreary waste of rhetoric and affectation. There are few touches of purer pastoral feeling, even in Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay, or in the arraignment of Paris, than Estrel's description of England. The airy hills enclosed with shady groves, the groves replenished with sweet chirping birds, the birds resounding heavenly melody, etc. Or the allusion to the fields of martial Cambria, close by the boisterous Iskin silver streams, where lightfoot fairies skip from bank to bank. The enthusiasm for external life and action, bound up so closely with the reflective tendencies of the university wits, is worthily expressed in Hubba's martial speech and in the splendid outburst of national feeling in Act 4, Scene 1, lines 28 to 37. Malone has put it on record as his creed that this play was written by Christopher Marlowe, whose style it appears to me to resemble more than that of any other known dramatic author of that age. It is to be hoped that Mr. Malone's creed contained other saving articles, else his hopes of salvation must be reckoned to be small, for with the exception of a few of the generic qualities just mentioned, which Marlowe also shared, there is not a jot of resemblance between the two styles. Indeed, it is perhaps a degree less possible to imagine Marlowe the author of the flatter and feebler parts of Locrine than to believe in the output of the youthful Shakespeare himself. The various-minded Mr. Flea has several times decided upon Peel as the author of our play, and Hopkinson is of the same opinion as regards the tragic portion of the piece. Peel's authorship, at least in the present state of our knowledge of that poet, is no such self-evident impossibility as that of Shakespeare or Marlowe, but it seems for many reasons improbable. The importance, character, and success of the cosmic element, the excessive richness of mythological illusion, far greater than in any play of Peel's and differently employed, the extreme rarity of run-on lines, and the general appearance of over-decoration all indicate that the author of Locrine is not Peel, and that he is Peel's more humorous, but weaker and more florid companion, Robert Greene. In the discussion of Greene's special claims to the play of Locrine is involved the consideration of another play, closely and curiously linked to ours. The first part, that is, of the tragical reign of Selimus, sometime emperor of the Turks, published anonymously in 1594 by the same Thomas Creed who brought out Locrine, Alphonsus, The Looking Glass, and James IV. 
Mr. P.A. Daniel first called attention to the connection between Salamis and Locrine, a connection so close as to prove indisputably either common authorship or conscious plagiarism. The one comic passage in Salamis is appropriated bodily from Locrine, Act 4, Scene 2, and the two works have more identical or similar lines than could easily be enumerated. Sometimes considerable passages in one play are repeated in the other with the change of only a word or two. For an imposing but by no means exhaustive array of parallel passages and a discussion of the relationship of the two dramas, the reader may be referred to Mr. Churton Collins's Introduction to Green's Works. Mr. Charles Crawford has further shown that some of the more elaborate parallel passages in Locrine and Selimus are imitations of lines in Spencer's Ruins of Rome, which was probably known in MS some years before its publication in 1591. Dr. Grossart has claimed Selimus for Green, and on the whole with a greater show of probability than Mr. Collins is willing to allow. The fact that six selections from this drama are quoted in England's Parnassus, 1600, over the name of R. Green, ought surely to be given very considerable weight when there is no contradictory external evidence, and when the internal evidence must be agreed to point in the same direction. In the variety and amount of mythological reference, in general dramatic structure, in the number and kind of borrowings from Spencer, Marlowe, and Green himself, there is little doubt that Selimus bears more likeliness to Orlando Furioso and Alphonsus, King of Aragon, than to the work of any other contemporary writer. As for Mr. Crawford's fine-spun theory that Selimus, with its multiplex heroes, disjointed plot, frequent rhyme, and total absence of any strikingly original situation or poetry, is the production of Christopher Marlowe, it is assuredly not unjust to pronounce the suggestion worthy of keeping company in the limbo of rash and unbalanced criticism with Mr. Simpson's arguments in defense of Shakespeare's authorship of Fair M, and with that egregious sentence of Schlegel, which declares that Cromwell and Oldcastle deserve to be classed among his best and maturest works. Robert Greene's early dramatic method is marked by two features, which especially distinguish Locrine. The first is his constant borrowing of lines and phrases from other poets and from himself, the second is his tendency to beautify himself with borrowed feathers in greater matters, to copy the plot and general structure of the most fashionable work of the hour. How continually in Locrine we find Green's favorite epithets, phrases, and classical divinities forcing themselves, uncalled for, into the lines will not escape the notice of anyone who will, for example, make a cursory catalogue, as I have done, of the mythological references in Locrine, and compare it with Selenus, Alphonsus, Orlando, and The Looking Glass. Crawford has pointed out, truly, I think, that Locrine is less influenced by Marlowe than Selimus, and that the former play, unlike the latter, does not borrow from the Fairy Queen. I differ from Mr. Daniel in regarding Locrine as the earlier play, and I believe it to have been written before Green fell under the spell of Tamburlaine, and while he was taking his models for tragedy, the species of drama represented by Gorbudoc and the misfortunes of Arthur. The choice of subject, the dumb shows, and the presence of lyrical speeches arranged in stanzas all mark Locrine as belonging to this class, as surely as Alphonsus belongs to the class of Tamburlaine. The true, if not very powerful or original, poetic gifts of Green raise Locrine, however, as far above the barely respectable work of Norton and Sackville and the unmitigated rubbish of Hughes, as all Green's early plays are themselves transcended by the first achievement of the mighty Marlowe. Selenus I would take as marking the transition from Locrine to Alphonsus. The trumpet blast of Tamburlaine reverberates through many of its speeches, but the cramping walls of Senecan dramaturgy are tottering rather than fallen. Lyrical stanzas and couplets occur here and there, and the action goes astraying, as in Locrine, from one principal character to another. The sequence I have indicated is borne out by examination of the style, 
which is most artificial and hyperclassical in Locrine, and grows very gradually but steadily less so in Selimus, Orlando Furioso, and Alphonsus, till the culmination is reached in the excellent simplicity of James IV. Locrine is a tragedy of the type of about 1585, that it could have been composed, with all its dumb show machinery and so forth, immediately before 1595 is practically impossible. Yet the reference in the epilogue to the 38th year of Elizabeth's reign points clearly to 1595-6, to and these lines must therefore be considerably later than the play as a whole. There is indeed no shadow of a reason why we should not accept as absolute truth the statement of the title page that the drama in 1595, newly set forth, overseen, and corrected by W.S., this W.S. may have been William Shakespeare, or William Smith, or anyone else possessed of these initials. His identity will probably never be known, and there is no question connected with Locrine which is less worth the settling, for the whole character of the play shows that, but for the addition of the 12-line epilogue, the activities of W.S. can hardly have extended beyond the crossing of an occasional T or the dotting of an I. End of section 3